Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. For the first time in season eight of this show, I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Matt Willoughby, to talk about a new game. Matt, That's me. I don't, I don't know what the what the, what the the burning orb in the sky is. It's bright yellow instead of white. I don't know what that is. We've it's, never seen it before. It's interesting. I I think that we're just creatures of the night at this point. And so I'm, <laughs> we're, we're, we're mole people. We're yeah. nocturnal. Here we are in, in broad daylight recording an episode of the show, and it's a little different for us. It is. I, I kind of like it. I'm not going to lie. It's um, jaunty. It's kind of fun. It's uh, It doesn't hurt that it's like a absolutely gorgeous Texas February 60 day. 60 degrees and a very light breeze. Yeah. Sunny and yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's, it's, it is picturesque, it, one it might say. It doesn't get much better than this, to be completely honest. Um, don't think we're going to be able to make a habit out of it, unfortunately, but uh, hey, you know what? It is Super Bowl slash Valentine's slash wife's birthday weekend, and so the the normal schedule just had to be adjusted in, in, in this way, and uh, I'm not complaining about it. We had to do a little bit of a scramble drill over the last couple of days as we were trying to fit this in somewhere, and we eventually realized, you know, nighttime is just not going to work, and so what what if we, I don't know, just did it during the day like normal people? Like normal people. So here we are being semi-normal people. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if it's if it's an utter failure and disaster and everyone hates this episode, just uh, blame the time of day. I don't think anyone's going to hate this episode. I'm actually really looking forward to this. Um, this is like, so, you know, obviously in the history of our podcast, there have been a lot of the big titles that we've been talking about getting around <clears throat> to that that got built up a lot, right? Like Wind Waker was one of those. Breath of the Wild was one of those. Even A Link to the Past was one of those. Those are all considered to be top shelf Zelda games, right? Yep, absolutely. And, uh, and so we had very good... Good reason to to be excited to get into those um but for me a link between worlds has kind of been an under the radar pick as like i'm actually really excited to talk about that one for a few specific reasons but like i i don't know i this is one that i have a lot of fondness for um it's one that I like. Obviously, it came out in 2013. It's actually 10 year anniversary of this game this year. Oh no way! Yeah, look at that. Yeah. We did that on purpose. There you go. <laughs> so um, it's it's one of those Zelda games that I picked up as an adult. Like, and so that kind of that kind of changes the equation a little bit. You know, it's not one that you get into as a child that like your parents got you the game or whatnot. You kind of like are intentionally seeking it out and being like, yes, I'm gonna go pick this up the day it drops and I'm gonna go experience it, buy it with my own money. Um, and yeah, it's like it's always had ever since I played it the first time. I just have a real soft spot for this game. So I'm, I'm happy that we can now come here and, and break it down critically. Yeah. So um, you bought this game for me, I think, probably Christmas or birthday at one point. It was part of an ongoing effort to get a younger Matt into top down Zelda games. Yeah, this was 10 years ago. So I was in college. Um, oh, my God. 10 years ago, I was a freshman in college. How's that feel? I uh, not not great, honestly. Actually, maybe going on sophomore. Yeah, I would have been a sophomore. No, this is the spring of my freshman year, ten years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, now that I've dated myself, um, 
I was very much in a place where the new and the shiny games, the big games like Skyrim and um, Dark Souls and, you know, Witcher. I yeah. mean, it was it, it was that era of gaming. Witcher wasn't quite yet. That was my senior year. But like, you know, you know what I mean? Like I was not sure. interested in going backwards. Right. And um, I had even fallen off the Zelda train a little bit mm-hmm. um, other than. Uh, Skyward Sword, which I played in college on my ex-girlfriend's Wii. Um, I borrowed it from her. And like I re- that was really the only Zelda I played in college, which was well, kind of weird. You're talking about a time in your life when you have you have the opportunity and and and, and the permission, basically, to just sit on your ass in front of a in front of a TV and play hours and hours and hours. Of video games, right? Like, yeah, and that was the golden era of FPS multiplayers. Like that was COD. Yeah, Destiny One was oh, hit. Destiny big One when, was yeah. real. Was real big. Yeah, um, Taken King was like smack dab in the middle of your college experience. It was, so. and that was a beautiful time. Um, yeah, it was just like a, it was a different era of gaming for me. So um, the only reason I had a 3DS at this point in my life was because the Majora's Mask Limited Edition one had come out. Yeah, and um, I wanted that so badly that I bought it. Obviously, and I still have it to this day. Uh, it's one of my most like, I think it's one of the most beautiful gaming consoles I've ever owned. Yeah, I'm never getting rid of mine. No, never. And uh, I love it. Um, I had that. I had Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask 3DS. Mm-hmm. And then you got me this as well. Um, and I played through the first... I got into the Dark World. Okay. Um, low Rule. Low Rule. I got into Low Rule. I met Princess Zelda's mirror counterpart and spoilers by the way yeah spoilers yeah i mean i think that's pretty obvious from the um just from the artwork of this game that there's at sure. least a dark world yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now yeah. the princess zelda thing spoiler sure but um i met her and then for some reason i stopped playing it i don't remember why it wasn't because i didn't like it i just was doing other things um and Unfortunately, between now and then, in the like seven or eight times that I have moved since then, I cannot find that copy of this game. So I had to go hunting yesterday mm. um, to many retro gaming stores. I called like five GameStops. I called two retro gaming stores before I could find a copy of it. Does GameStop even stock 3DS games? They anymore? do, actually. Okay. Um, they have a very small selection of 3DS games. Mm-hmm. Um, none of them had A Link Between Worlds. They had other titles, but not that one. Yeah. Um, so I was able to find one at a retro gaming store that, um, really does its business on like a GameCube DS original Xbox, like, you know, really like old games. Yeah. Um, they didn't have any cartridge games like N64 or NES or SNES. I didn't see any, mm-hmm. maybe they had them somewhere else, but, um, it was a pretty neat little place. Might go back and do a little bit of dumpster diving, I guess. And, um, but anyway, uh, that was a $30 misplaced game. So if you are looking for, uh, one <laughs> that you can get same day, like I could have gotten one online for like 22 dollars but i needed it yesterday so i could play the game nothing holds its value quite like an old mario zelda or pokemon game i mean yeah there's no doubt about that if you're trying to get into a used copy of of any one of those then um i honestly feel like 30 dollars is is not even necessarily the worst case scenario that it that it could have been you know um I mean, geez, I was oh, looking. Yeah. I was looking up. Uh, I was looking up used market prices for Heart Gold and Soul Silver the other day, and those are like basically MSRP now. Yeah, especially like it's crazy because this was used and it had two save files on it when I got it, and like even the cartridge was a little bit scratched, like on the front where the artwork is. Like it's it's yeah. totally functional, but even like a 
well-loved game. It's $30. Like, you yep. can't imagine what it would be if it was an unopened one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that would be crazy. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm glad to hear that your uh, your search was successful. Um, you know, obviously, just because we need you to be able to talk about this game. But uh, yeah, but yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you managed to pull that one out at the last minute and uh, glad that we managed to get this section of game played and ready for the podcast this week. So thanks for giving us your history with this game, Matt, just to give a quick uh, look into mine. Uh, so I, as I said, I bought this game on launch day in 2013 when it came out. Um, and an interesting bit of trivia on my end of things is that I actually played this game before I played A Link to the Past for the first time. No way. Yep. I did that like, all right, so now that you've played A Link to the Past more recently, yeah. um, do you feel like that spoiled your experience with A Link to the Past in any way? No, not really, because I had, um, if anything, it just sort of heightened it for me. Like, I enjoyed this game so much that I wanted to go back and play for the play first the OG. time yeah the og that it was based on and so for me it was just a really fun exercise in comparison you know and like finding the points of similarities between the two um and just kind of being able to appreciate uh the story of those two games together was really fun you know um i will say that like look obviously i i had been a, a gamer and zelda fan on the internet for many years before i started before i played this game so some of the things that were intended to create nostalgia here like the overworld and its similarities to a link to the past, right? Like I had, I had familiarity with those things, you know, like I knew, like I've seen people playing a link to the past and I, you know, messed around with it briefly once or twice. And, you know, it's just, it's part of the pop culture at this point. And so I had enough knowledge of that game as a product to still get some of the, like, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the TV. That, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nostalgia moments, like, um, so it was definitely not wasted on me. Now, did I get as much out of my first playthrough of this game as I would have if I had been playing Link to the Past since I was six or seven? No, you know, probably not, but, um... But even without that, I mean, hey, look, I, I got my fix on that from the Link's Awakening remake, right? Like, Yeah, that's that's fair. Yeah. Um, but even without that, completely positive experience and like it was definitely not uh, – I don't feel disadvantaged in any major way by doing it in that order. Okay. So there you go. Yeah. As long as you don't feel disadvantaged. Now, that, that being said, I would say if you're listening to this show and you have not played A Link Between Worlds before, you want to follow along, um, if you have not played A Link to the Past – yet either then i i would probably recommend going back and playing that one first you yep, know for sure just uh go back and listen to our season about it follow along and uh shouldn't take you more than a week probably yeah i mean if that yeah um yeah and and then you'll have a really good foundation uh for your experience with this game so that would be my suggestion yeah and it's I, i'm actually kind of grateful that um i didn't finish it the first time because now I do get the opportunity to more or less play this game for the first time after having played A Link uh, to the Past. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, kind and, of a happy accident. And at a point in your life where I think you have just a little bit more base appreciation for the top-down Zelda formula. Absolutely true statement. Cool. All right. Well, these are all interesting things to talk about, Matt. I say we get our intro out of the way, do some housekeeping, and then just launch right into the discussion. How's that sound? I think it sounds like a good idea. Awesome, because you have a Super Bowl party tonight that you. I do. <laughs> I have to go host a party. Mm. You're such a you're such a social socialite. Yeah. I'm such a socialite. Yeah, it's the it's the Jay Gatsby meme, Leonardo DiCaprio holding up the martini glass. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no fireworks at these, but uh, you know, 
Well, all right, old sport. Let's get into <laughs> exactly. <it. Yeah. laughs> Thank you. <laughs> if you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly re-examination of The Legend of Zelda one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week we play a new section of a Zelda game and then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, and be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod to get access to our Discord channel, listener mail, vote on what game we play next, and so much more. Additionally, one of the benefits that Master Sword patrons and above get is that we read their names every week here on the show. Those legendary individuals are Shepherd Street, Matthew, Chris, Daniel, Fallout 907, Kelso, Tiffany the Star, Daxel, Patrice, Stephanie, Darknuck, Brian, George, Mike, Dylan, Allie, Lennon, Melanie, Kolku, Aiden, Rowan, Josh, Nick, Dante, Gep, Brittany, Davey, Haru the Mighty, Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Ben, Daniel, Nick the underscore TV, Travis, Christian, Jonathan, Hyrule Interviews, aka Maximum Nichols, Garrett, and Drew. These are the most legendary of individuals. We uh, couldn't make this show without their generous support, their wonderful crew, uh, and we are thankful for them every day. Absolutely. And just a note to our big Goron Sword patrons, most of you know. Trading cards. Yeah, most of you know because we've been communicating via the Discord. If you aren't keeping up with the Discord channel uh, about the trading cards, um, our supplier has had another uh, hiccup. Uh, we Not another one since the last time we talked about it on Discord, but... Um, we are still waiting on the cards to be shipped to us from um, the manufacturer, who I believe is in China. Um, so we will keep you guys updated on that. Um, they said that they got the art files finally um, and that they were not corrupted this time. So hopefully we will have those in hand soon and we will do everything we can to turn those around as quickly as possible and be on the lookout for the January trading card uh, probably this week uh, sometime. So uh, we should have a little bit more movement going that direction. Um, this will be the last uh, Wind Waker card in the series and then in February starting our Link Between Worlds cards. So um, be looking forward to that. I think we'll all have a good time absolutely man those trading cards it's uh it's definitely a bit of an undertaking it, it is and um <clears throat> you know it didn't used to be so i'm not sure what has changed over there um if anyone knows of a really good supplier in the united states that can do trading cards like that um, of the same quality please let us know we've done quite a bit of research and haven't found any well um, and, the, but if, and the, the the bigger thing is that i think i would be hesitant to change manufacturers just for the sake of consistency like i think it would take something pretty major for me to risk that at this point okay well you can just edit that out cool no, I'll leave it in. It's good. It's good inside baseball on the on the process. There you go. Inside baseball. <laughs> it's uh, on Super Bowl Sunday. I was about yeah. to say. I don't think that's the. I don't think that's the right term. But we'll we'll just go with it. Whatever. Cool. Cool. You're not a sportsman. We'll leave it. I am not a sportsman. I am a gamesman. You are a gamesman. And We're both gamesmen. So with that being said, let's talk about a game. Let's talk about a Zelda game instead of baseball or football or anything. Yeah. Well, we of course talk about each section of game that we play every week in the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is a six part analysis of what we played and the feelings that it made us feel. Today, we are covering A Link Between Worlds, Chapter 1. Part 1 is always the plot recap, this week read by Matt. Take it away, Matt. (laughs) 
There is a legend oft told in Hyrule Kingdom. It is the legend of the Triforce. Once kept within Hyrule itself, said to be a gift of the gods, the Triforce could grant a wish of all of those who touched it. So, of course, many wanted to get their hands on it. Wars were fought for the Triforce. The royal family summoned the seven sages who sealed it in the sacred realm. But a thief of notorious repute broke into the sacred realm and claimed the Triforce. With its power, he became the demon king Ganon, who sought to dominate all Hyrule. But just as Ganon had the kingdom in his evil clutches, a legendary hero answered the call of Hyrule's princess. And this hero, wielding the master sword, took up a quest to challenge Ganon's might. He joined with the descendants of the Seven Sages to seal the Demon King in darkness. The Triforce was divided into three, its tempting power out of any one person's reach. One part stayed with the royal family, while another slipped into Ganon's possession. Legend says that the third part found its home in the heart of the Hero Eternal, and while legends come to us from the distant past, others have yet to be written. We lay peacefully sleeping in our bed, avoiding another day in the grueling forge of our master. While the bed and blankets are as comfortable as ever, the dark dream that has plagued our dreams for weeks creeps back. A dark form in the shape of a gigantic beast, wreathed in shadow and with eyes of fire, stands in front of us. Its ominous presence is an oppressive weight that seems to swallow the world in darkness. We stand before this beast with a sword in hand that doesn't look like any blade we have seen, but the weight of it feels right somehow. Just as the beast moves towards us to strike, we are woken from this nightmare by the loud shout of our own name. Gully, the plucky young son of our master, stands in the living room of our home, chastising us for sleeping in yet again. As usual, our prioritization of beauty sleep has put the master blacksmith in a sour mood, so we better head on up to the forge as quickly as possible. Following Gully and being sure to hit up the weather vane on our way by, we head up to the forge. As promised, the master is in a towering temper, but he's not the only one there to chastise us. The captain of the guard gives us a stern talking to about being a layabout and whatnot, as if we've never heard that before. He leaves with a passing compliment to the master craftsmanship of the sea of the shield and heads to work. Before the tongue lashing can really begin from the master, we notice that the captain has left his new sword behind, so we are sent to deliver it. Thankful of the reprieve, we run off towards Hyrule Castle. And once we reach the castle, however, a guard tells us that the captain usually goes to the sanctuary before work, so we redirect northwards and head there. Upon arriving, we find the gravekeeper Dampe and the priest's daughter Ceres outside discussing the captain. Ceres, ever helpful and sweet-natured, goes into the sanctuary to retrieve the captain. Once inside, however, the door slams shut and a scream echoes out from the sanctuary. Dampe begins to hammer on the door, but to no avail. He bemoans his old bones and the lack of a key to the front door, but he looks at us and tells us that we must get into the sanctuary to help Ceres and the priest. There's an old secret passage in the, from the graveyard that leads into the sanctuary, and using the sword that we brought from the smithy, we can make it through the rat-infested passage. Even though this isn't exactly appealing, we hike up our britches and head off to the graveyard to find this secret passage. 
The gravestone hiding the passageway stands alone, encompassed by stones, and as soon as we push it back, we find a staircase leading down into the ground instead of the corpses of long-dead Hylians. With sword in hand, we head down into the darkness. In the first chamber, we find a chest containing a lantern, which is essential for lighting up the darkened spaces that we must navigate. We see that there are sconces on either side of the closed door at the end of the room and head to light them with the lantern. Doing so not only illuminates the chambers and pots around us, but opens the door. After smashing the pottery for some rupees, we move further in. The room beyond is infested with rats and snakes, and we have to use our lantern to light the way as we move along so as not to get bitten. The walkway above us leads to a key that opens the locked door on the far side and allows us to progress. The final room poses a puzzle for us as the door is locked with no way to open it. There are two pull switches on either side of the door, and as we pull the one on the right side, a cascade of snakes drops down from the ceiling to attack us. After dispatching the pests, we pull the other lever and head into the sanctuary. Within the sanctuary, we find the priest cowering in fear. In front of the old priest is a heinously dressed man with an obviously magical staff. The priest is crying out to the man not to hurt his daughter. The dark wizard, with robes bearing an upside-down triforce, mocks the priest in his impotence to stop the wizard from doing whatever he desires. My name is Yuga, and I have come here seeking nothing less than perfection. As he finishes this proclamation, he turns to face Steris on the stage of the sanctuary. And you, my dear, are perfection. How can you stand being so lovely, surrounded by these filthy fools? I will put you on a pedestal, or rather upon a wall, perfect forever. And before our very eyes, Yuga casts a spell that seems to push Ceres into a canvas and transforms her into an oil painting of incredible likeness. Yuga exclaims over his new masterpiece and says that he believes her grace will be most pleased with the painting. Yuga finally notices us with a turn of his head, of his head calling us a mere worm that has wriggled into his sight. The priest is, dishonored, is astonished to see us and tells us to run as fast as we can, for not even the captain of the guard stood a chance against this sorcerer. Yuga, however, senses that our purpose is to try and stop him, and invites the challenge readily. We rush towards the sorcerer, attempting to slice him in two for what he did to Ceres, but in another bout of magic, Yuga transports himself into the very wall behind him, becoming like a painting upon it. We rush headlong into the wall and see stars cloud our vision. Before we totally lose consciousness, we hear Yuga leave the sanctuary, declaring that he will be seeking out what little perfection he can find in this gaudy world. We awaken in a familiar bed, surrounded by things that remind us of home. It looks like all of that was just a bad dream. Any minute, Gully should be coming in to scold us for being late for work, and it will be just another day at the smithy. But suddenly, a strange figure in purple bunny ears fills our vision, and we are completely startled out of bed and fall face first onto the floor. Oh good, you're waking up. I was starting to worry about you, buddy. This odd character introduces himself as Ravio, and that pretty much dispels any chance of it being a weird dream, since such a weird name is not really in the realm of our imagination. Also, this bird-like thing is flapping around being noisy as hell. What is going on? 
Ravio fills in some gaps for us by telling us that he had happened to find us passed out in the sanctuary, and out of the goodness of his heart, lugged us to this abandoned house that just so happens to be our own home. Hmm. We fill Ravio in on the events that, that led to us being out cold in the sanctuary, and that the house we are in is actually owned by us. All of this really only serves to prompt Ravio to really make himself comfortable and ask us, quite brazenly, to let him stay here while we go out on our adventure. In payment for letting him stay, he gives us his bracelet, which is made of what has to be an ancient leather and reeks like wet dog. But since it's a gift and Ravio was incredibly insistent, we keep it and put it on. He does at least admonish us to go inform the powers that be in the castle, which is really a great idea, so we head off north to Hyrule Castle to inform the princess. We reach the resplendent Hyrule Castle and head directly to the gate guard. He doesn't let us in because he isn't an idiot and takes his job of protecting the royal family seriously. We have to tell him the story that we are going to tell the princess, and as expected, he laughs right in our face. Frustrated, we continue to press our case until the door of the castle opens and an ancient woman steps into the courtyard. The guard calls her Lady Impa and explains the ruckus by saying that we have an extremely far-fetched story that we are trying to tell the princess. Impa asks us to repeat the story for her, but surprisingly, she seems to take us seriously and even goes so far as to invite us into the castle for an audience with the princess. Impa asks us to wait in the lobby while she announces us to the princess and encourages us to take a look at their gallery of exquisite paintings. We do so, and we see in painting form the story of the legend that we know so well. About the Triforce and how the seven sages of old sealed it within the sacred realm. Even in that sacred realm, Ganon was able to find the Triforce and transformed himself into a demon and waged war against Hyrule. The hero of legend came forth, however, and defeated Ganon using the Master Sword, and aided by the descendants of the Seven Sages, once Ganon was defeated and sealed away, the Triforce splits into three parts. One remains with the royal family, one in the clutches of the Demon King, and one lost to time, until a hero is needed once again. Lady Impa calls us in to meet the princess, and as we enter the hall, the princess turns to face us in all her royal splendor. She is young and kind and beautiful beyond compare, and as soon as she sees us, she seems to recognize us, and says that she has seen us in her dreams. Her dreams mirror those that we have been having about the dark beast with fiery eyes. She describes it as a dream where a hero is locked in battle with a terrible evil, and that hero looks like us. Upon hearing our story about Ceres and the captain, Zelda tells Impa that she fears darkness is awakening in these fair lands once more. Impa advises patience, patience, and that we seek to consult the elder Sahasrala in Kakariko Village. Zelda asks us to go in her stead and offers us a token of her esteem, a green charm with the sigil of a crescent moon on it. With the princess's charm around our neck, we head off to the village in the west. We find Sahasrala at his home in Kakariko, just as described. The wizened elder is eager to hear our story and is distraught to hear of Ceres' fate. He tells us that Ceres is a descendant of one of the seven sages of old, the ones who helped the hero seal Ganon away all those ages ago. He says that Yuga must be after the descendants of the sages in our own day in order to free Ganon. He then recalls with dismay that he sent his pupil, Asphala, to the the Eastern Palace to investigate rumors of an odd man lurking near there. 
Asfala is another descendant of the sages and could be in danger just like Ceres. Sahasrala asks us to hasten to the Eastern Palace to check on and possibly save Asfala. We head directly there, battling through some run-of-the-mill monsters like Octorox, but once we reach the place on the map that the Elder marked, it is blocked by an impassable door. We see some stones that look important, but have no way of reaching them. Also, there are pillars with the symbol of a bow and arrow nearby. And lastly, there are purple signs that tell the reader to visit Ravio's shop south of the castle. Knowing exactly where that is, we head back home and talk to Ravio. After telling us that he ran away from the Eastern Palace because of the monsters, he agrees to rent us the bow and arrow that he has, free of charge, since we are letting him stay at our home. With this handy-dandy tool in our arsenal, we head back to the Eastern Palace and use the bow to shoot the two blue stones that we saw earlier. Once we do, the door opens and allows us to proceed to the steps of the Eastern Palace. We find Osphala there, and even though we tell him the whole story and the danger that he is in, he ignores our warnings. Because of the power of his lineage and the sand rod that he holds, he believes himself more than capable of handling Yuga. He heads off into the depths of the Eastern Palace, and we follow Hot on his heels. We enter the Eastern, Eastern Palace and find it a musty and ancient place. The stones here have seen untold centuries pass, and we know from the stories that the hero of legend once walked in these very halls in his quest to defeat the Demon King. The bow and arrow comes in hand once again to hit a blue stone switch on the far side of the room over a chasm, but we also find hidden switches on the floor that look remotely like regular stones to open up other doors along the way. This palace may be ancient, but the enemies and the traps are as lethal as ever. Rolling boulders, lethal statues, wall-mounted arrow traps, and undead stalfos and tentacle enemies called Popo hinder our progress at every turn. The bow continues to be of use in opening doors and causing chests with keys to appear, and we push through the dungeon looking for any trace of Asphala or Yuga. We finally reach the main chamber of the dungeon, and using the big key we found along the way, enter the room to find Yuga suspending Asphala in the air with dark magic. Yuga mocks Asphala's preening before turning him into a painting, exactly like he did with Ceres. Yuga notices us just as he finishes admiring his work on Osvaldo's portrait and is supremely annoyed by our continued interference. We join battle with the wizard, this time wary of his ability to merge with walls as a painting. We instead engage him from a distance as he charges up his spells. We use the opportunity to smite him with an arrow from our trusty bow. This stuns the fiend and we rush in to deal out some justice with the blade of our sword. Yuga is not so easily felled and retreats across the room by fleeing into the wall on the opposite side of the central chasm. We continue to engage and chase him from afar while he charges his spells, and after a few hits from the bow and from our sword, Yuga has had more than enough of our pesky interference. Panting from the exertion, Yuga declares that we have forced his hand to brush us aside. Before we can so much as twitch, a powerful spell blasts us into the wall. Excruciating pressure seems to be squeezing us into a two-dimensional shape on the wall, and the pressure and pain simply must kill us before too long. After an eternity, we sit gazing, unable to move, as Yuga declares us a sad, drab painting, before merging into the wall and slithering out through a, a crack in the back wall of the room. As he leaves, he shouts loudly about needing more paintings for his collection, and mostly 
about his longing to have that exquisite Princess Zelda on his wall. Somehow, even though we are quite literally a painting on the wall, we can still think, can still hear, can still move? The bracelet that Ravio gave us gives off a bright blink, and suddenly we can move again. We put all our effort and energy into moving our left arm, and a bright light suffuses the wall. We slowly start pushing our way out of the wall and into the normal air. Without really knowing the specifics of how or why, it seems that Ravio's bracelet has not only allowed us to escape the wall, but also allow us to, allows us to use Yuga's magic at will to become a painting on the wall. We decide to try this new power out and merge back onto the wall and follow Yuga through the crack in the back of the chamber. We find ourselves on the outside of the Eastern Palace and use this new power to explore the area. There are tons of rupees to find, but not a trace of Asphala or Yuga. We leave the Eastern Palace through the front after slithering around the side and are immediately met by Sahasrala. He is beyond concerned about the news of Asphala being transformed by Yuga, but is outright distraught by Yuga's declaration of desiring Princess Zelda. As we discuss these events, a huge earthquake shakes what seems like all of Hyrule to its very core. We immediately head to Hyrule Castle with Sahasrala and find it encased in a barrier of dark magic. Seeing the jewel of the kingdom defiled by dark magic isn't the only cause for concern, however. Sahasrala tells us that because of this magic, and assuming that Zelda is still inside the castle, there is now no way for us to reach the Master Sword and use its power to dispel the evil barrier. For in order for the hero to claim the sword, he must collect the three pendants of virtue. The problem is that Zelda herself is a keeper of one of these pendants. But luckily, not all is lost, for we show Sahasrala the charm that Zelda gave us before we set out for the Eastern Palace, and the Elder is ecstatic to see that it is the Pendant of Courage. With the first pendant in hand, our path is clearly laid out before us. We must find the other two pendants in the Tower of Hera and in the House of Gales. It seems that destiny has thrust upon us the role of the hero in this crisis. While not something we ever desired or asked for, here we are. We must set off towards the north to the Tower of Hera to find the next pendant and overcome the challenges laid out for us along the way. We must claim the Master Sword and dispel this evil magic around the castle. Well done, as always, Matt. With that out of the way, let's get into part two, which is our takes, where we talk about this section of the game and how it made us feel. And so there's kind of a lot to discuss here because, you know, usually when we start off um, the first, excuse me, when we start off the first part two of a new season, we usually break things down into the base lore of the game. Yes, and then gameplay, of course, right? Of course. Um, but with this discussion, we have a little bit extra to add on top of that, which is the relationship that this game has to A Link to the Past. Yep. Right. So uh, here's what I think we should do. Let's go ahead and start with let's go ahead and start with the lore, backstory, timeline, discussion, that whole thing, and then let's talk about the similarities between the two games before we get into gameplay. Does that sound good? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. So obviously, uh, this game, if you've been following our discussion about which Zelda games take place in which branches of the Zelda timeline, um, this game does take place in the Downfall timeline. It is a Uh, It is a sequel to A Link to the Past. I almost said direct sequel, but that's not actually true. Um, The Oracle Games and Link's Awakening uh, both fall between A Link to the Past and this game in terms of the timeline. Is the link of 
Link's Awakening the same as Link to the Past? Yes? No. No? Oh, yes. As, as Link to the Past? Yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah and then so, the Oracle games, also same Link, right? I think that, yes, I think that that incarnation of Link has appeared in the most entries in the series of any of them. Um, pretty sure that Because he's got right. Link to the Past, Link's Awakening, Oracle, and Oracle. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Good for him. Yeah. So a lot takes place in between those two games. Um, obviously, you will remember at the end of A Link to the Past, after defeating Ganon, sealing him back away into his evil realm. Um, actually, we kill him, right? Um, yeah, he gets dead ski. Yeah. So Ganon dies. Uh, Link and Zelda reclaim the entire Triforce. They wish on it. A lot of good things happen. Um, without getting into spoilery territory, there are some things that happen in the Oracle games that um cause the triforce to once again split apart cool 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 and so with that uh basically the royal family of hyrule maintains the triforce of wisdom the triforce of power rests once again within the spirit of ganon um and the triforce of courage is lost to the world um Un, its whereabouts are unknown, and the understanding is that it will not show itself again until the time comes for a new hero. Right? Yes, that's correct. So, so this is actually a really interesting uh, lore point between A Link to the Past and The Legend of Zelda, because mm -hmm. obviously at the beginning of The Legend of Zelda, we know, um, you know, resurrected Ganon holds the Triforce of Power, and the royal family of Hyrule holds the Triforce of Wisdom, which they then split into eight pieces. So yep. this whole kind of like— And the uh, Triforce of Courage somehow doesn't exist. Yeah. Well, it does. It's just in the— Not an LOZ. Well, it exists. They just don't talk about it. Oh. It's in the Great right. Palace. Okay, it's fair enough, fair it, in Zelda 2, right? It's around. Yeah, it's there. It's out there somewhere. So, uh, so all this is to say now we're getting into that point where the royal family does not hold the completed Triforce. It is kind of split up and scattered all over the place. Um, you know, not not into eight pieces like it will become later, but it is not currently united. So, yep. yeah, so that's a very interesting uh, point of distinction. Um, obviously, this game takes place in the same world of A Link to the Past. I think that we're I, we're to understand that the time gap is is in the ballpark of 100 ish years or more. I don't think we're talking about millennia later, but it is definitely multiple generations after A Link to the Past. Um, but it is very much that world. We have that same Hyrule Castle. Kakariko Village is in the same place. All the major landmarks uh, are still in the same places that we remember them from A Link to the Past. Mm -hmm. um, and the hero that we meet in this story is once again uh, a, a, a child of seemingly humble origins. Um, the, to me, it's always interesting when they give Link a profession. Yeah, I you was going to say the same thing. I, I like that he's not just like the nephew of some random guardsman or just this orphan boy. Like he's the blacksmith apprentice. I think that's kind of cool. I, I think it adds some depth to the to the character that um, it gives me an opportunity to fill in a little bit more personality and backstory there, which I like a lot. Yeah. And it definitely makes me wonder if this link is intended to be some sort of descendant of a link to the past. Link's Awakening Link. I mean, he lives in that same house. So. Yeah, yeah, he does. So I would assume so. I don't think it's ever directly addressed, but definitely some interesting stuff to think about there. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, the picture of this version of Hyrule that we sort of see is that even though it is not a kingdom that is as prosperous as, say, the the Hyrule of Ocarina of Time, right? Right. It's not, it's not Hyrule at the height of its prosperity necessarily. But it is it's, 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 in a, it's in a better place than it was in a link to the past. Yes, well it's it, it seems like a very nice place to live and it certainly 
better off than like, you know, we call this the downfall timeline, right? And I think a lot of people always assume that to be named that way because it refers to uh, Link losing to Ganon in Ocarina of Time and that creates this branch of the timeline, right? Which is partially true. Right. But also like in my head, I, I always think of it in that in those terms just because to me the downfall timeline is very appropriate uh, given where Hyrule of this timeline ends up in the games that are at the furthest end. So in The Legend of Zelda and Zelda 2, mm-hmm. we're very much talking about a kingdom that has declined even further past this point. Yeah, right? it's it's basically mostly in ruins. Like yeah. there are a s- couple of small communities around. Some of the communities have been utterly destroyed um, by Ganon's minions and are just overrun with uh, evil spirits and ghosts. It seems like the graveyards are more highly populated than the villages. Yeah. The high rule um, of the downfall timeline could really do with some flooding, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> the water dragon needs to get her together in that in that timeline. <laughs> Where's the water dragon when you need her? <laughs> She's not doing her job the right way. She's no. flooding the wrong places. No, but you know, this version of Hyrule is very nice. We've got bustling communities. Kakariko Village seems darn pleasant. Hyrule Castle has a standing army, basically. Yes, right? this, like, this is one of the first, this is one of the few times, I would say, that we see actual guards in Hyrule Castle, right? Like, yeah, I mean, training and yeah, yeah, they're doing stuff. Like there's obviously the ones in Ocarina of Time. They're kind of useless. There are the ones in Twilight Princess that just run away mm-hmm. from shadow beasts. Um, I, that's, that's all that I can think of. Yeah. I mean, so it definitely seems like a, a, a functional community, a functional society for the most part. Yeah. Right? Agreed. And, and one of the things that I think is really nice about the way that this game opens is that in a direct juxtaposition to the opening of A Link to the Past, where, you know, you wake up in bed, your uncle's saying like, I have to go to the castle, stay here, it's not safe outside or whatever. Right. And then, of course, you walk outside and it's thunder and lightning and the ominous Ganon theme music, right? It's and going to it town. very yeah. much sets a tone and this game is the polar opposite of that right like we leave our house the sun is shining there's this jaunty overworld theme that's not even the classic zelda overworld. no it's got some spanish guitar and i love it i like this theme a lot it was very fun yeah it's it's definitely some feel-good music and uh and we really do spend a lot of time before things really start ratcheting up in terms of plot and tension uh, just getting to know the people that are in this version of Link's life and just kind of socializing. Yeah. You know, this theme and the kind of initial tone of the game feels kind of similar to Wind Waker in some ways, where it's bright and cheery yeah, and sure. everything's colorful and all the characters are animated very um, expressively. And even the character dimensions are a little Wind Waker-y. And um, it seems like a more fun positive spin at least on the upfront a lot um, of a lot of very expressive uh character work here um you know these characters they've definitely got a little bit of a goof factor to them um i i think that the top down games uh are a really good place for that sort of tone you know i, I think that it just sort of works really well for this format uh when you've got characters that are this small and especially when it's a little more difficult to to do fully rendered cutscenes on right. this on this system right like it, it does have some cutscenes. i wouldn't say that they're like yeah there were a couple even in this section yeah. I, I wouldn't say that they're blowing anyone away probably no. but cinematics right yeah but you know when you have when you have a game like this and your main characters are these like little top-down versions um i think that you kind of have to have that sort of th- a uh, big personality to it um, mm-hmm. to to really kind of empathize and humanize these characters. Yeah, and, and I think so. Weirdly, um, I find the the goofiness 
less off-putting than I did in Wind Waker. Um, even right off the gate, maybe it's just cause I'm sensitized to it after playing wind waker. I think that might be part of it. Um, but also like you were saying, for some reason it feels more, um, appropriate in this context of the top down game. And I think that also might be partially because, uh, Link's awakening remake was also a similar kind of expressive animation goofiness, like, yeah, yeah. uh, and bright art style. Mm-hmm. So like, I think there's a lot of things that are just converging at the same time for me personally to find this less off putting than I think I would have even if we had played a link between worlds before wind waker. Yeah. Um, so like there are, there are things that I think are going to buoy that above where it might otherwise would have been. So I have to kind of check my personal bias on that. Um, yeah. And, and, um, and objectivity there. So, you know, just trying to keep that in mind as we go throughout the pod. While we're talking about style and aesthetic of this game, I do want to say that this is this is a very interesting one to me because the 3DS obviously, you know, it's got it's got room and power for more visual fidelity around character and world models than the ds had sure right the 3ds is actually a pretty good little handheld system yeah it's fine it's fine you know do i do i wish that uh, an hd port of this game existed on the switch just so everything was a little crisper and cleaner i wish everything was on the switch i want all i want all zelda games everywhere yeah to be on the switch all zelda games Games everywhere everywhere. (laughs) yeah so uh i i completely agree that being said it's it's a completely serviceable art style um i think that to me there are a lot of there are a lot of things that i that i think are glow ups in terms of uh, the translation from stuff that was in A Link to the Past to this game, right? Mm-hmm. Music is one of those. We're going to talk about it in a second. Oh, yeah. The music's really good. But um, I think the only, For the, most part. the only one that I just don't think can really stand above what came in A Link to the Past is the art style. It's it's good. It's fine for what it is. It works totally fine. It doesn't look bad. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not as timeless. You're you're a big 8-bit fan. So and 16-bit. 16, yeah. you, well, you're both. You yeah. like both. Yeah. Um, so, like, I think there is a huge level of nostalgia for you and also just artistic preference because you gravitate towards those kinds of games even now. Yeah. Hyperlight Drifter being, you know, one of the big 16-bit games that you play a lot still to this yeah, day. That right, is a right. newer game. Yeah. So, I think that is totally fair for the those of you out there, and I know there are many, especially that listen to this podcast. I know there are many of you who just love the 16 bit and, um, you know, games that stay true to that art style, even when they're made today, um, just really, um, hit home for you. Like Stardew Valley as another good one, as mm-hmm. a good example, um, of a more modern game that was made with that art style specifically because so many people like it. It just hits that nostalgia button really, really well. Yeah. So I think that's fair. I actually think that for the most part so far, I like the environment glow up that this has. Yeah. Like the characters I'm uh, I'm I'm on the fence about still whether, you know, the 16-bit characters like the sprites versus these animated ones. I don't know, but like and, and, I think it, the enemies enemies are included in that, right? <clears throat> like yeah. I think that like the castle and the town and even the, the trees and the grass and the, the road, everything. Like, I feel like it looks, I I like it more than I did when it was in a 16 bit format. Okay. Environment wise, character, character wise, I'm on the fence. And that's, and that's totally fair. I, I think for me, we've got this other X factor added to the discussion, which is that like the, the, I think the most easily comparable Zelda art style to this one is Link's Awakening remaster for sure right and i just think that would that 
because there was a little bit more that they could do with it on the Switch, they had a little bit more power and like a little bit more uh, a little bit more room to just do something distinctive. Yeah. Um, I do think that that one, like to me, that's the perfect example of like you have mastered an aesthetic here. Yeah, you know? like, I totally agree. Yeah. I, th- I think that had this game come out on the Switch as an HD remaster instead of on the 3DS, I think it would have looked very similar to Link Between uh, Link's Awakening uh, remaster, and I think that would have serviced this very, very well. Yeah. But to your point, one thing that this is that this art style is able to do is to really showcase the brightness of this world. Mm-hmm. Like I think it is communicating the same feelings that A Link to the Past wanted you to feel mm-hmm. about this world, just in the 3D space using 3D models. Yeah, right. Totally agree. And I think so. It you know it deserves a lot of props for doing that because uh, the translation of one of the most beloved games of all time into a newer format like this is uh, probably a pretty daunting task. I got to believe that there was a lot of pressure that was being felt to live up to something with such a storied history. Yeah. While this is the love letter and an homage to that game, you also have to be aware of not making that a cheesy, crappy love letter or homage. Right. And um, that must've been a hard line to walk, but also um, what I would assume would be probably a labor of love for most of this team uh, that made this game to to not only put that as their goal, but then go out and do it. And I, I hope that they all enjoyed it and um, felt that they were successful because so far, I, I mean, just in the very first little chunk and the little bit I played past this, um, I I think they've done a great job so far. Yeah. Very, very early on, but I, I think they're doing good. I agree. I completely agree. I do. I, so we're going to get back to A Link to the Past in one second. I want to get back to the music real fast. Yes. Because this is one of those areas where I think um, I, I'm not sure. So obviously Skyward Sword was the first Zelda game to come out with a fully orchestrated soundtrack. Yes. That was a huge advance for the series. And it was amazing. It was amazing. Skyward Sword comes out in 2011. This game comes out in 2013, two years later. So this is the second Zelda game to have a fully orchestrated soundtrack. Man, what's it like to have only a two-year gap between Zelda games? I know, right? <laughs> well, hey, you know, that was – it was a different time, right? Like now we've got one platform that everything comes to, and back then Nintendo's got their home console and their handheld console, and there's a uh, there's an expectation that you're releasing games for both, right? And yeah. so in some ways I prefer the way things are now where I just have to own one thing and they're just putting everything on it. That's a good point. But also I do sort of miss the cadence of releases, yeah. right? Like agreed. I, yeah. Um, and I, I miss getting new top down Zelda games. <laughs> um, but, you know, also agreed. Yeah. But all that being said, so this is the second Zelda game to ever have an orchestrated soundtrack. And I do think it's notable that they did choose to go with that approach on a handheld system. Um, and I, I do think it elevates the experience a lot, right? Yes. I think it adds a lot of depth. A lot of a lot of these musical pieces that are in this section of the game specifically are just so great. We already talked about this jaunty intro music as soon as you leave your house. But before we've finished playing this section of the game, we've gotten uh, an orchestral version of the classic top-down overworld theme. We have a very brassy, uh, <laughs> royal uh, Hyrule Castle theme. There's a lot of trumpet, trombone, and tuba in that one. But it's appropriate for like the yeah, I mean, for sure, the, the the monarchal nature of the of the area. You know, right? like, I, I I don't know. I feel like. I don't know. Maybe I just associate brassy instruments with the John Philip Sousa era of music um, more than like the Mozartian um, era of music, which I feel like might have been a little more appropriate, more heavy on the strings. Yeah. um, And woodwinds. But um, because that's that this 
Although the the uniforms of the Royal Guards almost look like British Royal Palace mm-hmm. uh, um, officer uniforms, right? So yeah. red coats. Yeah. Um, so maybe they were going for a different like time frame feel, which is why they went more brassy instead of more string. But regardless, it's super distinctive. It right? is very it's, distinctive. It's got, a, it's got a lot of personality to it. You know, we get all of that. We we hear the Kakariko village theme. Which is right? amazing. Um, yeah, we hear the the being inside of a house theme, you know? Yeah. Like, we get a reprise of the dungeon music from A Link to the Past. Which I cannot wait to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that in the dungeon map, but yes. But all that is to say, like, this soundtrack for this game, you know, similar to what I was saying earlier about how a lot of people have other Zelda games very high up in their rankings, um, and this one, I think, gets forgotten about simply because there's so many great options, like there's so many great entries in the series, you know? Sure. Um, Similarly, from a soundtrack standpoint, I think that there are a lot of conversations that happen about like, oh, this is one of the greatest Zelda soundtracks of all time. This is one of the greatest soundtracks of all time, right? Um, And like those games, it's it's all deserved. Twilight Princess, Wind Waker, Skyward Sword. Like all of these games, yes, they're, they're phenomenal 10 out of 10 soundtracks. This game, I feel like, has a phenomenal soundtrack and it just doesn't get talked about in the same breath as often simply because this game kind of flies under the radar in terms of discussions about best of Mm-hmm. In terms of the Zelda series. Yeah, I, th- I think you're totally right about that. And, and I think part of that comes from being a sequel. Like a lot of times sequel games are not discussed as often as their originators. Yeah. You know, primary example, Majora's Mask and Ocarina of Time. I don't there are very few Zelda fans that are going to go out there and say Majora's Mask is better than Ocarina of Time. Very few. Um, and I think that in addition to that, the 3DS um, nature of the game um and the time in which it came out, I, I think there was a lot of things that kind of go against it as far as timing and console and mm, sure. um, everything like that. So I, I, I mean, I'm looking forward to to digging into it because mm. so far, like I said, this is a very positive first blush impression for me, and I'm very excited to yeah. play more. But I think most most of what it is is just again we, we're talking about tasteful updates of a classic, right? And the soundtrack is definitely in that conversation as With, well, without being just a remake. Yeah. Like they're trying to do their own game that is, like I said, a love letter to the original. Yeah. And but but still unique. Yeah. And I think that's a very hard line to walk. Um, and I'm interested to see how they pull it off in the end. Yeah. Well, and I think it does a similar thing that the soundtrack from Link's Awakening remaster does, right? Where mm-hmm. it's a it's a faithful update of the original, right? Um, but but with some extra sound and some extra like sensibilities that communicate the aesthetic of this game a bit more specifically, right? So for Link's Awakening Remaster, it was like, yes, we're updating these old soundtracks um, for this newer game, but we're adding a little extra personality to it. There's a lot of like C instrument sounds in yeah. there, right? And it's like in it, and that was very appropriate for that game. This game has a bit more of like a just a band. Yeah, like it, a, it's it's got a it's mostly in major key so far. Yeah, um, everything is updated. It feels like something we could have played in high school. Yeah, um, it is just not like it is a it is an update of the old soundtrack, which does have its own distinct musical aesthetic. Agreed. So big, big kudos there. Let's talk about we, we're, we're dancing a lot around the translation from the old game to this game. So as we get into gameplay, let's talk about what this is really yep. which is in some ways and this is i think a conversation we're going to keep coming back to a lot throughout the season even <clears throat> though this is nominally a sequel 
to A Link to the Past, in some ways it is functioning as a remaster as much as it is anything else. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I think there's a lot of similarity between um, obviously the the sages and the descendants of the sages and then capturing the the sages being captured by um, not Ganon, a a wizard and his service. And um, like there's definitely there's definitely retreads of those same themes um, that I think can either go one of two ways. They'll either be ham fisted and like, okay, like can, or is this not a, this isn't original anymore or, um, be just like good and charming and, and well executed. Yeah. So it is worth mentioning that is, is, so my understanding and we'll talk, we have several historians of the Zelda series who come on this show, right? So we'll talk about this more with, you know, your Josh's and Max's of the world For when, sure. we, when we get around to that. But, uh, the story of this game is that it began life as just a remake of A Link to the Past. Okay. And then morphed into a game that was telling its own distinct story. But I think you can very much see like the thought exercise of like, what if A Link to the Past, but on the 3DS, is still very much here. That's fair. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I think that that's nice. It feels, even for somebody who hasn't played A Link to the Past as much as some other folks, uh, it feels, it's a, it's a nice warm comfort blanket, right? Like I do have love for this version of, of Hyrule and it's very nice to revisit it. And I think it's so interesting because so rarely in this series do we revisit almost identical versions of places that we've been before sure there i don't think there's another game that takes place in exactly the same map square by square it all no it, it all happens on a smaller scale in other games right like sure we'll we'll end up in updated versions of the temple of time for instance right that right. still feel very faithful to the ocarina of time one and for like sure. you know we get stuff like that but we never really get anything quite like this and it's kind of a treat right because it does have me wondering like what does a you know, what does a, a sequel to Ocarina of Time in that high rule, like with, you know, more graphical fidelity, more interest added to the world, but still everything in its appropriate spot where you remember it from Ocarina of Time? Like, yeah. what does that look like? Is there, you know, is there something there? I don't think that it's something Nintendo wants to get in the habit of doing, nor should they. They should continue innovating. But in this particular instance, it's nice. It it feels like coming home in a certain way. Um you know, and, and gives me the warm and fuzzies. Yeah, it feels familiar in not a bad way. Yeah, for yeah. sure. How how did how did it strike you as somebody who has spent even less time in a link to the past than I have? Like, what what were your emotional uh, like? What was your emotional situation getting into this first chunk of the game? I think for me, it wasn't so emotional as it was just like, oh, that's really cool. Like, um looking at the overworld map immediately is like, everything is exactly where I remember it being. And then what the, the part that really got me was when we go and talk to Shahash, Rahash, Rahash, Um, and he says, you know, the pendants are hidden in the Eastern palace tower of Hera. And he starts naming off the dungeons. Yeah, exactly. And like, once he named them off and they were the exact same, I was like, Oh, all right. Like we're keeping everything the same Mm -hmm. and like also when zelda tells you to go meet i'm like (laughs) "Ah, he's still around and um like it was it was those moments more than the overworld map for me that hit the nostalgia button in the in the most impactful way all of it was 
a net positive, right? Like I think it was cool and, and it was interesting and, and I liked it. Um, but those moments in particular, the naming of things that are the same, mm-hmm. um, and knowing that I will interact with, or, you know, go to the dungeon of, or, you know, whatever, yeah. um, was, was the highlight for me. You bring up an interesting point here talking about our good friend, Shahasha Washa Washa. Uh, <laughs> and just, just, just so that we're all clear about this, I do know how to pronounce this name correctly, but the I mean, so do I, but is this is more fun. <laughs> Sahasrala, right? I prefer Shashabashabashba. Sure you do. Um, it, it, it is something interesting I want to talk about here, which is that we get introduced to a very large cast of characters for early in a Zelda game. Like right off the bat, you have Gully, who I originally thought was like maybe your own brother. Turns out not your brother, the son of your master. You get Gully, you get the blacksmith, you get the blacksmith's wife, you get the forged dwarf. I think he's a dwarf. Yeah. You get the captain of the guard. You get Dampe. Love yeah. to see Dampe back. Love to see Dampe. You get Ceres. Yep. You get the priest, you get Yuga, Lady Impa, Zelda, Shashwashwashwa, Asphala, yeah. and any of the people of Kakariko that you interact with, all of whom yeah. know you by name. Ta- Talon, who owns a milk bar here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's only appropriate. I know. It's only appropriate. I want to know where this world's version of Lon Lon Ranch is. He talked I about know, it. I want to go, go there. there. Yeah. It would be fun. But like, regardless, like we meet a lot of people here. Yeah, that was like. 10 to 12 yeah off the top of my head and to me this is one of those things where it's it's one of those things that makes a version of hyrule feel like a lived-in place very much for sure you know and it doesn't hurt that i feel like all of these characters really do have their own distinctive personalities they do right and their named characters is also super important yes like i think it's very important to give your characters names instead of just villager Uh, yeah well and you were able to roll those off without any effort at all so it says something i think about the extent to which this is a pretty memorable cast of characters so far yeah off, off off the top of my head they're they're just right there and um I I liked it. I liked seeing Impa back as the old lady crone, very similar to the character design she had in the pamphlets for Legend of Zelda and right. Link to and uh, Adventure of Link. Like she looked almost exactly like what she looked like in the the pamphlets. Yeah. there. I thought that was really cool. And I so, liked that. And so we have to now have a conversation about which of these characters actually are the physically same versions of themselves from a link to the past. Cause I think it is a little unclear. Like obviously not everybody is, but I mean, I'm not, I, my impression is that Sahasrila is the same Sahasrila from a link to the past. I think so too. Max said, um, this game really gets into the reincarnation of B-list characters. So maybe he's not, but my impression was that somehow Shashrashra, uh, just like lives forever. Yeah. And well, to like, me, good it, for him, to me, it's, it's him. And then Impa, I have questions about whether this version of Impa is the same one from a link to yeah. the past. And we know from Skyward Sword that Impa can theoretically live for a thousand years. Yeah, that's fair. What was Impa in a link to the past? She was right. Uh, hold on. I think she was mentioned. I don't know if she was actually in it. I've slept since then. So after a moment of impromptu research, uh, I was actually incorrect and misspoke. Impa is not present in A Link to the Past. That's my bad. For some reason, I just kind of take it for granted that she appears in most everything. So there you go. I, I think we're having a conversation exclusively now about whether it's the same Sahasrala, right? Right. And I'm just going to – I'm going to assume that he is in fact the same character until – I am given really good reason to think otherwise. Head cannon, yay! There we go. Wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be an episode of Sacred Realms without a little uh, side <clears throat> venture into head cannon. Um, so now that we've spoken about characters, uh, let's talk real quick just about the 
um, the versions of the main characters that we're introduced to here. We've already mentioned Link. Um, we have a Zelda who is designed much more along the lines of modern day Zelda, right? Which is like yep. basically how she appears in Ocarina of Time onward. Yep. Um, Very Twilight Princess, Ocarina of Time regalia yeah. going on. And, and definitely has a little bit to do here, right? We have a pretty substantial conversation with Zelda and she's taking a fair amount of responsibility onto herself. She gives you some orders. Yes, she does. Um, it's always nice to be sent on a heroic quest by the actual princess herself. But then we meet this game's main enemy, which is Yuga. <laughs> And I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on Yuga. I think he's ridiculous. Um, I think he looks ridiculous. Okay. I think Yuga is a classic tortured artist. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that I say this with, with a fair amount of personal familiarity about on to the say, topic. You yeah. being the tortured artist for the entirety of your life. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so it's funny. I actually texted you this. I thought that the captain was going to end up being Yuga because the captain has the same little like weird. I don't know if they're supposed to be eyelashes or if they're like face tattoos, like underneath his eyes. Um, like just three. I, black think, lines. I think they're just very stylized eyelashes. That's, that's a choice. Um, so, but obviously I was wrong about that. So Yuga, um, his motivation being that of like beauty. Um, very serial killer, like yeah, very very um, Buffalo Bill. Yeah, but I'm very I'm very curious. But to instead know. of skinning people, he puts them into paintings. paintings. Yeah. So instead of it puts the lotion on or it gets the hose, is it? Uh, but just just real quick and without confirming or denying too much, I'm very curious to know what you make of Yuga's design aesthetic, because there's a lot that I think you could dig into there at yes. this early point in the game. Uh, he looks. He or she. Um, I actually don't know. He? Is Yuga given Yuga. a gender? Uh, Yuga is... I think he's a wizard, which would mean male, generally. Yuga is male identifying. There you go. So Yuga being male identifying, dressing like a clown, and very effeminate, and very like there's shades of gear him here right yeah yeah there there really is and um and even joaquin phoenix's joker a little bit um yep, which yeah, came yeah. out way after this obviously so not can couldn't be an inspiration of but yeah um yeah he is i he, want you have you looked at the concept art of yuga i've not looked at the concept art no okay, okay. here you go right here so it looks like agonim in the concept art. Like almost exactly. Okay. Except the, instead of having a red hood, he has red hair. Okay. I can't see very well. I'm going to open my laptop back up and okay. pull it up myself. Um, so I think that they're definitely going for a more sinister vibe. And I don't know if they were going for this, but it, he comes across as more sinister than, a lot of other villains we I'm, have I'm just in his to, serial killer vibe. Sure. Let me let me let me give you All right, guide me, me where you want me to go. Let me give you a hand here. I'm trying to gauge the extent to which you have been spoiled on the plot of this game with mm, almost with, none. With a few leading questions and what I'm hearing is that you uh are going to be discovering some things for the first time as we as we play through here. So Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. Um, cool. I, I love to hear that. I don't know anything about Yuga, 
outside of what we have seen so far. Cool. All right. That sounds good. But but fair to say that we have yet another in a long line of eccentric Zelda enemies who are not Ganon here, right? Okay, so now I'm looking at the concept art, and his little circlet is very um, Gerudo, Ganondorf Gerudo circlet. Um, the pointed ears, red hair, facial features, very Ganondorf. So um, I'm assuming he's... I mean, and I know that he's from Low Rule. So, and Low Rule being what the Dark World turned into from A Link to the Past. That's not correct, actually. Oh no way! <gasps> oh man, I'm going to learn so many things. All right, I'm just going to stop theorizing there. Okay, and we're going to keep good. going. We're going to learn. Sounds good. Yeah, it's going to be a few weeks because we're in the we're in High Rule for the next few weeks. But. I like learning new things Yay. that I don't know. I'm happy for you, Matt. I'm glad that I can watch you go on this journey completely unspoiled. I'm, I, I love that for you. Um, okay, so we've talked about these characters. Let's talk about gameplay real quick before we get into the dungeon map. Let's do it. Basically, we have a – so we've got several different conventions of top-down Zelda here, and they have evolved over time, right? Yes. I think we both felt when we went back and replayed A Link to the Past, like even though the mechanics were fun, the combat mechanics are fun, there are some things that were a little frustrating, right? Yep. The lack of diagonal attack ability outside of the spin attack. Yep. Um, you know, kind of – it's a little, uh, a little jerky – like movement just doesn't feel as precise as we're used to in some other versions, yep, right? Not as fluid. Um, yes. Like the the speed at which you can swing and attack your sword is maybe not quite as much as we would like. Um, things like projectile travel time when we're using bows and stuff are a little difficult to get Gauge, around. Yeah. You know? um, so what we have here is a much more modern take on that top-down style. And there are some things that really stand out to me at, that make it feel really good. One is I like being able to swing the sword as fast as you can push the button. I absolutely agree. Spam that attack button, baby. And also Link's ability to walk in like, you know, completely any like, direction, forward, backward, diagonal, whatever. Like it's uh, it's 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 a little thing that just makes these top down games feel so much more fluid. To totally me. agree. You're not doing a, a four, you know, it's not WASD and no no combination of right. Like it's not yeah. I like it. The the movement feels so much better. the The diagonal reach of the sword being actually all the way in front of you, yeah, such a big difference. Yeah, in, in a positive way. I and love that. I love I love how the spin attack in this game. When you charge it, a little circle appears around you. That briefly. tells you how far it reaches. Yeah. yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. So that's all. That's all excellent. The sword play in this game is fantastic, and the combat kind of really, um, really pops as a result of that. Uh, but in addition to that, we have a big improvement on the shield mechanics. I know that, interestingly, you actually, <laughs> you you ended this section of the game without a shield. Sans a shield, and whole I, way. I think there's a very good, uh, that there's a, a good conversation to have there. I don't know that it's immediately apparent to people. I think everyone's just so used to being given a shield in these games. Or told to go get yourself yeah, like, a shield. Like you have to have a shield in order to go do dungeons and whatnot like it's a part of the intro game quest in this game uh you actually are not required to have a shield at any point to beat the game yeah um i didn't have a shield at all like i said um i honestly assumed that at some point in my quest to the eastern palace someone would either tell me go here get a shield i would be given a shield or like i'd find one in the dungeon as like the mm. dungeon item which would have been kind of disappointing but um yeah yeah like i i did not like go outside out out of my way to look for a shield so to everyone listening the answer to this little quandary matt had is uh in order 
in order to get a shield in this game, you just have to go buy one from the store in Kakariko Village. It's not very expensive. It's 50 rupees. And I highly recommend doing that because the shield mechanics and like the way that you use the shield in combat in this game is a lot more intuitive than it was in A Link to the Past. Um, In this game, you actually just hit the R button to raise your shield. Oh, well, that that makes sense. It's not the whole thing of A Link to the Past where where it's always up. It's always up and you just kind of have to stop like attacking or whatever in order for it to be used right um this is a much a much better system i think uh it works really well so yeah all that being said go grab the shield if you uh if you're <laughs> you know if you didn't know to do that just go buy it um, like me yeah exactly uh worth noting also uh you can end this first section of the game having already bought a bottle yeah i um i found that out i was looking as i was looking as i always do on zeldadungeon.net following their walkthrough guide as i was typing up the plot recap and everything um just you know refreshers like that and um yes i discovered Mm -hmm. that as well so i ended this first section of the game with the shield the sword which you do get given um the first bottle the bee catching net and uh and then of course the bow and arrow which we'll talk about more in a second yeah i had none of that except the sword and the bow and arrow okay cool actually i don't know that we should so i was sitting here thinking we should talk about the bow and arrow in the dungeon map except here's the thing it's not a dungeon item it's not it's it's technically a world exploration item at first and so here's here's a thing that is a big hallmark of this game that we should just probably go ahead and talk about in gameplay before we get to the dungeon map and that is the system by which you acquire what we consider to be the main suite of zelda items you know bow hookshot fire rod boomerang whatever um is completely different in this game than anything you've ever been used to before uh you have not gotten to the point yet where ravio's entire stock is open to you but basically the way that this works is exactly how it happened in this first section of the game where you try to go get into the eastern palace you can't get in there you see a little pedestal with a icon of the bow on it you know that you have to have the bow to get in there (laughs) you go to ravio and he basically rents a bow out to you right yep so that is the way that it works for all of those main items like pretty soon we're going to go back and talk to ravio again and he's going to have the entire stock of items open to rent and you can just assuming you have the rupees rent these items out and have all of them if you die then they all go back to ravio and you have to rent them again woof now it does not always that does not continue being the case for the entirety of the game like there there is a pathway towards actual ownership of of these main items okay well that's good later in the game but this is such an interesting thing because obviously not in this section of the game we'll talk about it more next week but it allows for a little bit of free form uh like tackle things in whatever order you want Again, we'll talk about that more later, but for right here, I do think it's super fun to, one, basically just get the bow first thing. You know I love the bow. Yeah. And this version of the bow is great. Yeah, I I like this a lot. Being able to fire this thing diagonally is so nice. Oh, it's huge and huge. (laughs) Um, Also, um, I actually like— We didn't even talk about Ravio. No, we didn't. Um, I like the— mechanic by which you don't have arrows you have that little magic meter thing yes i like that actually i didn't think i was going to until i was just like firing off arrows and then letting it recharge and then firing off arrows again well this goes back to what i was talking to last season where i think in one of the episodes i brought up the point of like why do i have to have a bomb inventory right right like i love so much in breath of the wild how you just have 
bombs infinitely and they're just on a timer, right? right? Um, this is a version of that, right? So it's not that you can just spam these things infinitely. You do have like an energy system to manage here. But it's so nice not having to just go scrounging for arrows in order to keep using this thing, you know? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I liked this a lot. And it's so nice because obviously later in the in the episode we'll talk about getting access to the the main ability of the game, which is the ability to merge into walls. Yep. But I think it's nice that all of these things just feed into that one main energy mechanic, right? It's the only thing you have to manage. Um, it gives you just enough to where you can use it as often as you want it, but you still have to pay attention to it. And that's a great balance to pull off, I think. Yeah, you're not man- you're not doing inventory management as a side piece of gameplay. And inventory management can be fun sometimes or it can be at least interesting, but just constant inventory management is sometimes a pain. It's never been a pain for me in most Zelda games, but um I like this. I I really do. I thought it was so far anyway well executed. Yeah. Um and so kind of last thing that I want to talk about before we get to the dungeon map is just uh for reference Obviously, in the past, we've done this thing where Matt's playing the regular version of the game. I'm playing hero mode. So in A Link Between Worlds, you actually don't even unlock hero mode until after you've beaten the game on regular mode. Um, I have beaten this game several times, so I do have access to it. and I am playing in hero mode. Um, The way hero mode works in A Link Between Worlds is heart drops are still a thing. You know, like you get hearts to drop on the same, like, you know, the same probability as they as they do in the regular game. Uh, the only difference is that enemies just do four times more damage. <laughs> so are you getting one shot? No, but I'm getting down to half a heart on like one bump from like a rat. Oof, that's pretty rough. Obviously, the situation gets better as you get further in the game and you upgrade your defensive options. You get more hearts, right? Like there are ways to mitigate this the further that you go in. You maybe have a shield. Yeah, but the, but the thing is I actually kind of like this solution just a little bit better because as long as you're succeeding in combat and getting heart drops, then it, it does, you know, like it is – it's manageable. Even though it's difficult, it is still manageable. So there you go. That's the rundown on which versions of the game that we're playing. Well, that's good. Did you die at all in this section? Nope. Me neither. Cool. Uh, do you have anything else you want to say about our takes, basically? Like, do you want to wrap up our takes before we get into the dungeon map? Yeah, let's go ahead and do it. I know we're, we're kind of getting lengthy here, so let's let's move on. Okay, cool. But fair to say, good first impression. Yeah, absolutely. Very positive first blush. Cool. All right, let's get into part three, which is the dungeon map, where we talk about this week's dungeon from mechanics to music and more. Uh, This week's dungeon is, of course, the Eastern Palace, uh, which is uh, a reprised area from A Link to the Past. Um, with the bow in hand, we're able to get into the Eastern Palace. The whole the whole thing is that we're trying to find Osfala, who has gone in um, somewhat brazenly uh, to try and solve a problem in there all on his <laughs> More own. More than somewhat. Yeah. Um, we're trying to follow him because we know that he's a descendant of a sage, um, and Sahasrila has told us that we need to keep those people all together because they might be in some sort of danger. So we get into the Eastern Palace. And I, I would love to I'd love to hear some upfront thoughts from you about this dungeon experience. Um, well, um, I actually found this a pretty enjoyable first dungeon experience, especially for a top down Zelda game. Um, I I liked the puzzles that it had, um, the heavy reliance on the bow for problem solving, um, shooting the various switches and hitting the Mm -hmm. hidden floor switches, which are a little easier to distinguish than they were in A Link to the Past. Yes. Um, The 
um, mix of enemies and um, environmental traps like the giant rolling Indiana Jones balls. Um, the Stolfos are back and uh, like, yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was good. Um, it didn't like blow me away, but I thought it was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, the Yuga fight I did without even taking a single point of damage. Mm-hmm. So like, I thought that was probably too easy, even for a first dungeon boss, a little too easy. Yeah. Um, but then no, no first dungeon boss will ever be harder than Moldorm. <laughs> yeah, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, the, the thing that really made me happy and excited in this first dungeon was the getting the power to go into walls and then the exploring the outside of the Eastern palace mm-hmm. and all of like that whole last, I don't know, let's call it quarter, uh, was unique and fun yeah. and it was a good introduction to the main mechanic. What I assume the main mechanic of this game will be. And I thought it was very, very well done as Zelda gimmicks go. We're, and we're getting, we're scooting right to the end of the dungeon. We'll circle back here in a second, but uh, as main Zelda gimmicks go, the merging into walls mechanic is, I think one of the cooler ones. Yeah. I actually, uh, so far I think it's pretty cool. There's yeah. like, there's like a lot you can do with this from a puzzle solving standpoint, because it's like, now you're not having to take, stock of just the um the two-dimensional top-down space that you're in but also when you're in wall form you have to take height into account right right which is i I think a pretty big deal and uh this game finds interesting ways to play with that the further that we get into it right so I, i completely agree with you that mechanic is great um it definitely helps feel like at the end where you're merged into the wall and you're creeping along the backside of the Eastern Palace and you see the sheer drop down to the bottom of the canyon, right? Yep. Um, it does this really interesting thing where it makes this feel like a, a, like a tangible space yeah. more than these sometimes do in the top-down games, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, and, and just talking about the space of this dungeon, I do think it's really fun. Obviously, it's um, it's very similar to its appearance in A Link to the Past, and it's fun seeing that similarity. I was I showed up all ready to talk about like, oh, this is a fun dungeon. I love how similar it is. But why does it change between right. games, right? Like who comes in in the hundred years between these two things and like changes the layout of the dungeon? Then I realized <laughs> like I was looking at uh, I was looking at the maps of the dungeons in so as it appears in a link to the past and then as it appears in this game and it's actually really interesting because yes there are still some changes right the main the main landmarks are still there like the big rolly ball room on the first floor you know is basically unchanged and all that but the thing is that in this game we're we're going up the palace like we're going up floors like we start at floor one and then we go up to two and then to three uh in a link to the past you actually go down you start on the main floor and then you go down to a basement and then another level and so basically it's not even that it's not even necessarily that contradictory with its earlier appearance we're just exploring a different level of the temple than we've seen before that's fair. Yeah, I, I didn't think about that, and honestly, mostly because I didn't remember the Eastern Palace from A Link to the Past well enough to well, like do the side by side comparison. Well, neither did I. Like, I'm I had to Google this and like put the little <laughs> put the little uh, images next to each other and compare them that way. Um, but still, it's 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 neat, and I I kind of appreciate. Yeah. I, I'm sure there was a little a little thought put into that. Um, a lot of the puzzles, you know, it is mostly switch based, like activate switches with your bow and arrow, dodge darts coming out of the wall, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say that any of it is like too terribly challenging. No, but there is a level of coordination that's required here, 
and uh, and that's good. Like, I think that this is a, a very good balance of what a first Zelda dungeon should be. Yeah, it teaches you mechanics while not being overly difficult, and especially teaching you in the back part the wall mechanic. Yeah. And um, I think the the most the room that took the most coordination for me was the moving platforms while the darts were shooting, and you had to shoot all four switches. Um, mostly because I got on the small platform first, so there wasn't enough room to maneuver around to dodge the yeah. arrows, and I mm-hmm. almost died. And that was it for me as well. And honestly, that room was it was so challenging in a very fun way, because like I said, on hero mode with only three hearts, uh, you can only take two hits from those wall darts and you did and you're done. Um, And so there really was a lot of me kind of like doing a little dance trying to get around these arrows while the platform is moving. Yeah, Um, it was kind of difficult. And I, I enjoy that challenge, you know, Um, that's one of the things that I think the top down games can always bring to the table is that uh, the limited range of movement that you have within them can lead to situations where even seasoned Zelda players have a little bit more challenge to dig into than in like an Ocarina of Time or Wind Waker, for instance. Yeah, totally agree. And um, I think that that's one of the things that can be a little bit daunting about approaching a top-down Zelda game, especially if it's your first one, is it sometimes feels like it's, a no win or hard, very, very hard to win situation. Um, I don't think either of us are there, but um, no, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was good. It was appropriately challenging, appropriately interesting. Didn't blow me away like Dragon Roost Island did uh, as a first dungeon, but um, I thought it was well done. And again, reiterating just the introduction of the wall mechanic, I thought was probably the most well done part of this first dungeon. Yeah, definitely. Um, So, yeah, so it's so interesting because, as we said before, we already have the bow going in here. So um, the very first dungeon of the game, we don't actually have a dungeon item to collect. And I'm curious to know if that's something that you missed. No, I didn't miss it. Um, Oh, you mean like didn't – you mean like missed as in I wish that it happened. Got it, got it. I thought you meant like did you – anyway. I did actually. I I do – I do like the collection of items in dungeons as a uh, progression mechanic of Zelda's. Mostly because um, it gives you an extra thing to be doing in there. Yeah, right? it's an extra sense of accomplishment. It's an extra little dopamine boost. It's um, it's generally fun to see puzzles designed around that um, in the back part of the dungeon. Um so like it, it changes the progression of the dungeon midway through to be reliant on that new item, which I always find interesting. Um, yeah, so I I, I did kind of miss it in this one. I'm not going to lie. And when Asfala said that he had the sand rod, um, so he's basically invincible. I was like, cool. So I'm going to get a sand rod in this dungeon. Sweet. Um, obviously it didn't happen, but um, there you go. Yeah, I, I would say I did nope, miss that. It. That sand rod is locked into the painting with Asfala. Yeah, he he's going to keep that. Uh, in his little in his little oil painting (laughs) i do agree with you traditionally that is nice having that like that those layers of interaction with the dungeon right where it kind of opens up once you get the new thing so i will say once you get into the so the first few dungeons are all like this there's nothing to really collect in them um the dungeons in the back half of the game actually the back two-thirds of the game there is something important to find in each dungeon but 
it's not a dungeon puzzle solving item in any of those cases. It is always you go into the dungeon having already rented or acquired the item that you need to solve puzzles from Ravio. Yeah. But what I will tell you is that the dungeons in this game maintain a complexity even regardless of that. Uh-huh. Like it, they, they compensate for that by having um, just a, a lot to do in these dungeons even though you've already got that item. Yeah. No, I I agree. I think that it was um, it was still an appropriately uh, well designed dungeon. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Uh, do you have anything else that we want to say about that before we move on? I mean, you know, I don't want to shortchange this too much. Like, it's a fun experience, but but again, it is a first dungeon. Sure. Of a game. Well, the other thing we wanted to talk about was the the music and the re the reprise of the Eastern Palace theme. Yeah. Um, in this game, um, from the a link to the past version um basically taking that 16-bit sound and translating it into an orchestrated piece yeah and man they did a really good job so i will say it's yeah they did a great job it's 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 really an awesome translation of that original what was the the hyrule dungeon theme for a link to the past like in that game you had a dungeon theme for hyrule a dungeon theme for the dark world and they were all the same in every one right I don't remember if this game has different themes for the Hyrule dungeons or not, or if they're all this one, but I do know that the low rule dungeons each have distinctive themes. Yeah. Okay. So that's good. So uh, next week when we go and we play the Tower of Hera, we'll kind of circle back around to this and and be like, oh, did they come up with new stuff even for like, does each one have its new one? And they just saved the reprise for this, the first dungeon. I don't remember. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But regardless, great piece of music. No, I totally agree. It was it was it was excellent, and it and it and it set a good tone for the dungeon, and it set me up in a good mental space to just be very engaged with the game and the dungeon and and everything involved therein. Yeah, so, yep, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, with all that being said, let's move on to part four, which is Bloopy Trails, where we talk about. Oh, actually, before we move on to part four, let's let's uh, let's stay in the dungeon map for a second and just talk about one or two of the puzzles that come with the wall mechanic. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. So before we move on from the dungeon map, Matt, I do just want to talk again real quick about our introduction. Basically, this game's tutorial to the wall puzzle solving mechanic, right? And I, I really love this because what we what, what ends up happening is that we kind of go through what is a bit of an Indiana Jones obstacle course. Yeah. On the outside of the of the palace yeah. right um you know having to know <laughs> like we've got a moving platform and it's got a barrier in the middle of it so i know i've got to merge into the wall before the platform goes flush with the wall and i fall off right right we've got a few areas like that um we've got an area where like a piece of the wall hinges in on itself to form a complete part and it just kind of keeps doing that over and over and so you've got to like time it right to where you're merged into the wall to where you can go all the way across it before it splits again you right. know there's some fun stuff here, right? Sure, absolutely. I think one of the things that I liked was the out, the exterior going from you know either side, and then taking the the lift up and down, and trying to get yourself positioned vertically within a 2D space, yeah. which is crazy. Getting yourself positioned vertically in the right way to then maneuver around to to progress forward, I thought was really cool. And that's one thing I actually meant to say earlier was I feel like this game does verticality a lot better than um link to the past obviously just coming from the fact that it's a newer game with a, a better graphics and yeah um the the depth 
uh, is a lot easier to gauge. So I think that they did a really good job with that. Yeah. And it's important that that work, right? Because if you're having a hard time gauging, am I above or below, right? Am I on a top floor or a bottom floor? Yeah. If you can't portray that well, then this main mechanic starts to fall apart and get frustrating, right? Yeah, totally agree. But like the visual cues are done well enough, like the depth is portrayed well enough to where it never hits that point. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you find the secret 100 rupee piece? I did. I found two of them. Okay, cool. On the outside. Yeah. But uh-huh. like, yeah, when you get, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Cool. That's fun, right? It is fun. That it, was, that was very rewarding. It encourages exploration in a way that is completely different from what you normally do in a top-down Zelda game, right? You're usually yep. looking for secret doors or bombable, bombable walls. walls or whatever, but this is just a completely different thing where it's like there's nothing like that to this. You're just trying to think, oh, now I can move on this entirely different p- directional plane and, you know, I should maybe explore a little bit while doing that and see, sure. where, it, see where it takes me. Yep. That's fun. Yeah, and I did, I did that. I got every chest in the exterior and interior of uh, the dungeon and um it was a rewarding exploration experience for sure awesome so it's not technically part of the dungeon but obviously you can't save and quit this section of game without going through a little cut scene at the end right yep do we want to talk about that real quick i know it technically yeah, probably it. belonged in the lower section and eh, let's do it but um we do get a setup right here at the very end where sahasrila takes us back to hyrule castle which is now uh which is now encompassed by a very artistic looking magical barrier yes it is uh quite colorful for sure and this 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 little epilogue to the dungeon kind of sets up our main quest which is the only way to get past this barrier is to obtain wouldn't you know it the master sword of course what what else could it be we already have the pendant of courage so now we have the setup for the introductory quest of the game which is that we've got to go reunite the other two pendants that we acquired in a link to the past and get the master sword from the sacred grove yep um which again retread link to the past but not necessarily a bad way. No. Nope. It is what it is. Um, get, get three things and then get the Master Sword is about as classic as Zelda gets. So. Yeah, it's, it's it's a formula that's tried and true and has and has worked many times in the past. Yeah, absolutely. So there you go. Fun little epilogue to the dungeon. We'll see where it takes us next. I will say real quick, obviously, we said before that this game works on a system where you can go and do the dungeons in separate orders if you want. Um, and that does start now. You could go either to get uh, you could you could go to either the House of Wind um, or the Tower of Hera. Yep. Straight from this point. And this is just a reminder. Uh, and the schedule is posted on our social media and in our Discord if you want to go take a look at that. Um, we are doing the Tower of Hera next week. That's the order we're doing this in. Perfect. Cool. Love it. All right. Well, with all that being said, let's get into part four, which is Bloopy Trails, where we talk about interesting things that diverted our attention this week. What did that What did that encompass for you, Matt? Not a lot. Honestly, I was um, more in a panic about trying to find the game and, be, and uh, do this section than I was um, able. So I wasn't um, – in the mood to explore outside of our, our little path at the moment. So I didn't do much. Um, I did do a little bit of looking around for Gully because I noticed his parents were missing him. So I looked around just a bit, but didn't find, um, didn't find anything. So yeah. Did you notice the witch? I did. I did notice the witch who flew over and I was very curious about that and we'll go looking for her. Mm -hmm. I did get the hint glasses from, um, the, the, oracle or fortune teller or whatever okay see i didn't do that yeah i did i just someone said like go see the fortune teller i was like okay so there you go 
Yeah. Um, so for me, it mostly uh, came down to the fact that I really wanted to get that first bottle. And so I did a little bit of rupee searching in this first section of the game. And one thing that actually really helped out with that led me into another blue betrayal, which was uh, becoming acquainted with the 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 bee dude. I forget yeah. what his name is. I call him the bee master. Anyway, he's a dude who wears a bee costume and he lives in Kakariko Village. Um, and if you go talk to him for the first time, uh, I'm trying to remember what the progression of things is here. So you have to have the bottle. And then when you go talk to the bee dude, once he sees you have the bottle, uh, he will lend you his bee catching net and encourages encourages you to bring bees that you catch to him um, and will give you 50 rupees per bee that you bring to him. Well, that's pretty cool. Um, and then, of course, he drops a little hint that there's uh, there's a very rare golden bee that you can find out in the world that he'll offer extra for. Fun. So, um, but I would highly encourage going and doing that. It's not required, but that bug catching net, uh, you do need to catch fairies and put them in bottles, okay. for instance. Makes sense. Um, so that's definitely probably a good thing to go and do. But aside from that, I didn't do a whole ton of exploration. I tried um, I tried to activate as many of the save points, uh, as many of the uh, weather vanes as I could, um, just to like have them open you know, and, and accessible for – some later point, uh, uh-huh. which I won't mention now. But um, that does bring me to one thing, which isn't necessarily a bloopy trail, but I think we need to talk about this game's save system real quick. Yes, I do want to talk about that and also one other piece, but save system first. Um, I don't like, I'll be 100% honest, I don't like not being able to save as I desire. It's a bit of an antiquated system, yes, right? I don't like it. Yeah. The other thing I don't like right now, one item spot. Uh, you get more. Oh, okay. Well, good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It doesn't stay that way. That's good. Yeah. That's for the best. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> where are you not? But uh, but yeah. So the save system is definitely a product of like an older school of game design, right? Sure. I think we've seen several people in our Discord as we've been playing through these games talking about how they've lost progress. At some point, because they're just like, we're so conditioned to having autosave now, basically. For sure. You know? And it's very weird for it not to just be doing that. Um, Again, 2013, we're just on that cusp of, like, people learning new and better ways to handle this sort of thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, And this is definitely kind of a convention of older game design that I think we can all say we prefer not having to rely on anymore. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing is... um, like I lost progression also. Um, I was using my 3DS while I was waiting at uh, discount tire for um, some car work. And um, you know, I left discount tire, just closed the 3DS. Like it goes into sleep mode, uh, drove, drove back to my apartment. And when I got to my apartment, the, I guess it had jostled it a little too much. And it had said it lost connection with the, um, the cartridge. So, I had to like take the cartridge out and put it back in and I lost, you know, a, a, a chunk, not a lot, but it was cause I wasn't playing that long, but yeah. I lost, you know, five, 10 minutes of, uh, of play time mm, because rough. I didn't have auto save and I wasn't able to just save as I was standing up to go check out at discount tire. Like it was, it was frustrating and, um, that's rough buddy. It is. I mean, <laughs> thanks Zuko. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it was, I, it's, I think that's going to be kind of a pain point, but one that can be worked around. Um, 
But yeah, definitely an antiquated saving system. This is definitely a friendly reminder to everybody playing this game. Go save when you're done playing. <laughs> Don't forget to go save. Yeah, you're going to hate yourself if you finished out a dungeon and didn't uh, didn't hit that save button at a weatherman. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move into part five, which is Z-targeting, where we lock on to fascinating characters or enemies that we happen to cross. Matt, I'm going to let you go first with your Z-targeting. Um, Let's go with Gully. Um, Gully was interesting because he's the son of your master who just lets himself into your house, yells at you while you're asleep, and then proceeds to tell you, like, ad nauseum that his dad is really pissed off at you. (laughs) And, like, that's not helpful, thank you. Everyone spends a lot of time in this section of game telling Link how lazy he is. Yeah, (laughs) being a layabout's not gonna get you anywhere in life. Like, okay, thanks, man. Um, no, Gully was kind of a snot-nosed little punk. Um, in some ways, um, I appreciate him being my alarm clock, I guess, but, um, yeah, there you go. Gully. He's, fun, he's, he's your fun, he's your fun little younger your friend character. Plucky you know? sidekick. Yeah. In, in some ways, I guess. But, um, yeah. Okay. Gully is a good one. Uh, speaking of people who just let themselves into Link's house, uh, <laughs> my Z targeting pick for this week is going to be Ravio. <laughs> <laughs> who really takes a lot of liberties with the social contract. He really does. He's like, well, I uh, found you unconscious in the sanctuary and decided to lug you back here to this apparently empty house. And by the way, can I just stay here for a while, please? Great. You're <laughs> the best. You know? Yeah, that was very, uh, very forward. presumptuous. Yeah. 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 Um, but I do really, <laughs> Ravio is a fun little quirky character. Um, this kind of like, uh, I don't know, sort of seedy shopkeeper vibe that he has. You know, he's very uh, look. He's helpful in his own way, but he's definitely not. Uh, he's definitely not the most altruistic character in the world, right? Like if uh, you know, if you keep having to send his items back to him, it's like, hey, first one was free, but sorry, guy, um, I do have to charge you for these on an ongoing basis. And I'm just thinking, like, you know, I really feel like I'm letting you live in my house rent free. I was going to say, yeah. maybe we should start charging you rent. How does how does that sound, Radio? <laughs> We'll talk more about Ravio and his story uh, later in the game. But for now, definitely a very Zelda-ass Zelda character, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. A lot of big personality there. Good pick. Good pick. Because his little outfit is... And his little bird sidekick is pretty cool, too. I I like the little birdies. Yeah. But no, and I like his outfit, too. His little purple bunny thing he has going on. (laughs) uh, You know, it it looks cozy, if nothing else. It's very... He stands out. There's no doubt about that. Something nice to wear around the house, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, I think that brings us to the end of Z-targeting, which means that it's time to get into part six, which is our final thoughts where we let Matt wrap up this section of the game in as succinct a way as he can think to do. So we start our playthrough in A Link Between Worlds back in a familiar setting from our past um, with a new set of characters, or mostly new set of characters, um, that just hits all the right nostalgia uh, buttons for us. Um, The musical retreads of uh, familiar pieces, the um, setting, the and the tone of the game all feel like a nice warm blanket uh, that just gives us a lot of good, happy feels. Um, we, We move on to meet a very interesting cast of characters from the blacksmith to Sahashrashrashra and Zelda and Impa and, and all the others that we encounter um, and set ourselves on a familiar journey uh, to save the kingdom from uh, existential crisis. Um, 
We retread the Eastern Palace in a new way, um, apart from what we did in A Link to the Past, but somewhat familiar, and are introduced to a couple really good mechanics, um, specifically the main mechanic of the game, um, moving in and out of walls and and using that to traverse. So um, all in all, a very strong opening section of the game um, that has us looking forward to more um, and looking forward to diving back into this version of Hyrule that most of us know and love so well. Well said, Matt. Couldn't have done it better myself. That brings us to the end of this installment of the Sacred Realms Rundown. We'll be back next week to talk about the next section of game, some more plot happenings, um, see the world open up just a little bit more. It's going to be a fun time. So that brings us to the end of this episode, I think, for the week, Matt. Uh, I know we got to get out of here. You have a party to throw. I've got to go pick kiddo up from grandma's house. Got to got to get about our week here and... Uh, just keep going with life. But this has been a fun time. It's been really fun, as always, to talk about the intro of a new Zelda game with you. Very, very promising introductory section of the game. Um, I think has us both feeling like we're ready to dive in and play a little bit more. I have to say that I, I really had to restrain myself from playing too far ahead on this one. Yeah, no, I'm I'm very excited to to dive in and, and just keep going and, and keep enjoying uh, the game and and move along in a uh, move along home move along home <laughs> Alabarain. oh wow that is a deep cut that is about the worst <laughs> episode of deep space nine that we're referencing here for anyone who didn't get it and the why, why would you it's it's it is a deep cut yeah. um but yeah so lots of good times ahead and uh definitely I, i'm probably gonna play forward a bit more tonight and i'm gonna enjoy every minute of doing that let's do it all right matt well, y'all, we appreciate you tagging along with us for this journey and, uh, you know, would love for you to continue listening along as we cover the rest of this new game. Um, by the time we're done playing this one, we're going to be within a stone's throw of Tears of the Kingdom. So this is bringing us this game is ushering us into a very exciting phase of Zelda fandom. Absolutely. So. And we're also going to hit an important milestone for ourselves in this season. Coming up on episodes? 100 episodes. Oh, uh, which one is this? 90. Ninety six. This is this is ninety seven. Three episodes to go, and we hit the big century club. We hit Man. the century club, wow. baby. Wow, that's big. That's big. <sighs> Maybe we should do something special. Maybe for our hundredth episode, we should do something special. I I think that's something we need to think on, Matt. I'm very excited by that possibility. Absolutely, man. Whoever thought we'd get to it, we'd actually make it. All right. Well, we, we're we're super darn close. So. Stay tuned on that, and we'll have more to say later. Let's get into some outro and get out of here for the week. If you enjoyed today's show and would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it's not a problem. Five-star Apple podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show. That makes us very happy Hylians. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at sacredrealmspod for updates on the podcast and for behind-the-scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on A Link Between Worlds Chapter 2. We'd love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels. A Link Between world can be played on the nintendo 2ds and 3ds family of systems but nowhere else except for emulation in some places a little complicated apparently but in the meantime may your hearts be full may your arrows never miss we'll catch y'all next time sacred realms is an independent podcast production which is produced edited and mixed by me lyndon willoughby 
Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel and Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameChops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences.